let's look through our text then. Here it starts at the beginning. The king of Egypt says to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let him live. So let's look at this first part. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, notice that we don't know the name of the king. How cool is that? He's a fairly central character to the story, is he not? He's fairly important to the story. He's going to have this major cosmic conflict between the God of the universe. And we don't know his name. The text is not going to tell us his name at all. It's best guesses that it's Ramesses, and then you have to choose and dynasties and people argue and debate. We don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't think it's important to tell you the evil guy's name. And I kind of like that. But the Bible thinks it's incredibly important to let you know the name of the names of these two women and what it was that they did. Now, what do their names mean? Well, Shifra means beauty, and Pua means fragrant blossom, which is also how it came to mean the word girl, fragrant blossom. Later on, it's being used for one of David's um, children. And the root can also mean to murmur or to gurgle. So one of the uh, rabbis um, suggested that maybe Pua has to do with the life that she's giving these children, her name, that, that she's giving these, this life breathing in as, as children murmur and gurgle. Perhaps their names are infused with a little bit of meaning here as to the story that they're bringing forth. That as these minor characters are operating against the king of everything that they're familiar with, this king of Egypt, that as they're engaging in this, they're bringing about some beauty and they're bringing about some life. Well, what's the role of a midwife in the ancient world? Well, in the ancient world, and particularly in Egypt, midwives were the ones that helped women bear down on the birthing stool. And particularly in our text here in the Hebrew, it's going to say, what, not like when you're having these women birth, but it says when they're on the double stones. And what does that mean? Well, we have this wonderful relief here where this woman is bearing down and giving birth in a crouching position. It wasn't until about 100, 200 years ago that women predominantly started giving birth in a laying down position, about two to 300 years ago. And that seems to be the predominant role for a lot of, uh, ancient, for a lot of current Western societies. But ancient practice was crouch down, bear down, birthing stool, double stones. And the midwives would come into the birthing room prior to the woman giving birth, They'd be offering prenatal care. They'd be checking how the women are doing. And then they would be providing um, a safe place, which probably meant shooing the men out, um, a safe place for this woman to give birth. But particularly it meant guarding against any mean spirits, demons, other gods that might try to take away the life of this child. Because there was a lot unknown in the birthing process, and there was a lot of infant mortality in the ancient world even as there is today, and in the news today, thank God it's news when a woman loses her life in childbirth. But that used to not be news. That used to be a real fear, one in two women often in the ancient world losing their life. So as the child is looking at, as you expect a pregnancy, it's with joy but also with great fear. So the midwives would be providing some safety, some sanctity for the women in this process. We have actual birthing bricks and this is one of the ones that they found in Egypt, and here's what it looks like. And it's a woman helping, a midwife, helping a woman give birth, but protecting her and asking the other 
goddesses, gods, Hathor, to come into play and to make sure that this baby is being born um, safely into the world. This was the role of midwives. So if you are fearful, if you're concerned about your own life, the life of your child, then you're going to keep calm and call on the sidekick, right? Would any woman in this situation believe that midwife's a sidekick? I'd say no, not a sidekick. A very, very important person who's going to be able to clear the breathe the airways of the baby as it's born. They would often plop the baby directly onto the ground to try to connect it with the Mother Earth and to try to help that baby breathe. They are doing all sorts of things. They would keep the umbilical cord. They would keep the placenta. Things that we only talk about now if, like, you're a hippie, right? So these things, these ancient practices are now coming back around in a lot of Western practice as well. The midwives knew about all of this, and they then also helped to keep, take care of the women after the birth. They helped protect the child afterwards. They helped to continue to shoo the men out and let everyone recover from that practice. So as the midwives are then told, as the Hebrew women give birth, you are to kill these baby boys. Again, these women are now asked to commit murder by Pharaoh, by the king of Egypt himself. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do, and they let the boys live, giving us the first recorded act of civil disobedience. How cool is that? You now have in your text the first recorded act of civil disobedience. A ruler has said, you have to do this. And women to midwives, whose names we actually know, say, no. I fear God more than I fear you. Now that doesn't mean that they don't fear Pharaoh. I believe that they feared Pharaoh. Would you not fear a man that said, do this and kill innocent babies? Like, let's not get on his bad side. He's going to kill the babies. I'm sure we'd be next. In this case, we have right here in text, first recorded act of civil disobedience, and it's two women. As the king of Egypt summons the midwives then, he asks them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And here's what they answer. Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. I don't know what to tell you. They're more vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Is that true? Is there something uniquely developed in the Hebrew women that's distinctly different in the Egyptian women? No, right? They don't have a different set of whatever they need in order to provide childbirth. And in fact, we know from the consequences that are given to Adam and Eve that their actual childbirth for all of humanity is going to be difficult and painful. So the Hebrew women lie. And here's our next question. Is it ever okay to lie? And the answer is yep. It is absolutely okay to lie. Because God is going to reward the midwives for doing this. So our first recorded act of disobedience in the Bible is we're Pharaoh going to say to the midwives, kill these babies. The midwives are like, I don't think so. I fear God more. They get summoned back before Pharaoh. They give him a ridiculous answer. And they lie to him. And God says, good job. So it's a great Sunday school, right? Sunday school lesson. You always want to teach your kids that it's okay to lie. 
Is that true? You heard that growing up? Did anyone hear it was okay to lie? And we're not talking about when, you know, a wife asks her husband, does this dress make me look fat, right? Like, that's not the kind of lie we're talking about here. Absolutely not. Which, by the way, if it does, you should tell her, but in a different way than was in your head. That's all. You know, just find another way to say it because you don't, that's not the kind of lie we want to keep going on. Uh, But instead, we have this example in the Bible that it is okay to break the commandment of thou shalt not bear false witness, that you shall not lie. It's okay to break that commandment when you're saving a life. Who knew? It's not okay to lie all the time, right? We're not talking about all the time lies. We're talking about specifically lies when you're hiding people who are being oppressed. Let's say you were in current Iraq and Yazidis and Christians had fled into your home and ISIS shows up and says, are there any Yazidis and Christians here? And you would say, no. And you would lie. And that would be the right thing to do, to preserve life. So what kind of king is Pharaoh? He's a terrible one. He's a terrible king. And this is deeply important to our story because all of Exodus is really going to be this ultimate contest between Pharaoh and between God. What type of king are we looking for? And what type of king is Pharaoh? Well, Pharaoh is not just a terrible king. He's kind of an idiot. Because he's ignorant of the very basics of labor. So he can't be a giver of life. Now God himself, throughout the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, in different key points, is going to talk about he, how he is the giver of life. And the Bible even sometimes use midwife-type language for God. It happens in Ezekiel. It happens a little bit in Isaiah. It happens in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. I mean, is this, does not the Hebrews midwives lie sound bizarre and ridiculous? Would you believe such a lie? Anyone in this room? Oh, wow. I guess, no, you would not, right? You would not believe such a lie. Wow, I guess those Hebrew women, they're just popping them out. I just, no. I mean, maybe if you have this concept in your head that they're not human, which would be possible of the Egyptians, right? But it's not a reasonable thing to believe. And if the king is supposed to be the one who protects life, who gives life, who brings that forth, his absolute ignorance of how life occurs and enters into this world means that he cannot be king anymore. And so God's kind of midwives and the people increase and become even more numerous. Remember that phrasing again. We talked about it last week, this echoing back to the creation story that the people of God are commanded to be fruitful and to multiply. And that at each section of time when Pharaoh comes up against the Israelites trying to squash that reality, trying to squash the fact that they are fruitful and multiplying, God allows them to do it even more to be more fruitful, to multiply even further, to be more numerous. All of that continues to occur. And the midwives fear God, and he gave them families of their own. They're rewarded for this. So as we look at this concept of being fruitful and numerous, we realize that Pharaoh is up against the creator of God, the creator God of the universe and his creation plan. Pharaoh is up against the creator God of the universe and his creation plan. All of the things that God promised and set forth from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. And he doesn't just say it to the people. He says it to all of creation. Pharaoh is up against that and doesn't realize it. 
He is trying to stop that which God has built into the very fabric of his created order. And this makes Pharaoh a terrible king. And it doesn't look very good for his long-term prospects with God. Like, this is probably not a contest he's going to win. And we start to have this amazing introduction of this setting up right at the very beginning of what the created order is, how God has made things to be, and how Pharaoh is trying to stop the ocean itself. It's not going to work. Let's continue to push through our text a little bit. Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people then. Every Hebrew boy that's born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So he's now not just commanding his oppressors and overseers to give the Hebrews the crushing work of the crushing work and the working and the crushing. Remember last week. And he's not just doing that and then seeing more fruitful and multiplication. Now he's enjoined the Hebrew midwives themselves and said, help me stop this. And they aren't going to do it. And now he's going to make responsible all of the Egyptian people. And he's saying, you yourselves, all of you must be the ones now to identify Hebrew boys and to throw them into the Nile. And he's now making responsible the whole civilization, the whole Egyptian community for the death of these children. It's become an institutionalized oppression. It's not just a king. It's not just a handful of bad foremen. It's not just that he's now trying to rope in a couple of the actual Hebrews um, and do this into the midst of a birthing process where they're supposed to be protecting women from gods and goddesses that would seek to take life. And here comes Pharaoh pretending to be a god and trying to take these lives. Now he's going to enjoin this command to his entire Hebrew, to the entire Egyptian people. Here's a picture of the Nile. The Nile gives life. If you see the Nile from a satellite image up above, look at, can you tell where the water hits? It's green. Its tributaries stretch out. And as you are walking by the Nile, it's so lush and vibrant that you can, they literally, in the Bible, they'll talk about how you could just, in Egypt, drag your heel in the dirt because the water would just flow in and start to irrigate your crops. And I've been there and I've seen this. And then you walk a little bit further and it stops and it's desert. And you can see quite literally, a green line that flows on the boundaries of the Nile, providing life. But if you go a little bit too far, there's death because the Nile can't reach there anymore. And this Nile is so life-giving that it's exactly why the Hebrew people are there. Because as we remember back in our Genesis series, we talked about how there was famine in the land, and where did they go? And this happened over and over again with the patriarchs. They go down to Egypt because Egypt has the Nile. It's a breadbasket. There will be food there. There will be water there. There's a way to live there when famine, when the brown, the desert has reached everywhere else. There's water. There's life at the Nile. And Pharaoh has taken that which is absolutely life-giving for his entire community, for the Egyptians, and now it's going to become the instrument of death for the Hebrews. And this water theme is going to push now throughout the rest of Exodus, and it's called foreshadowing. So as we look through the major importance of minor characters, I would like to add, not necessarily as a human character into our story, but that God is going to start taking these primary elements like water, 
And then also like the desert later on, like fire, like a land of milk and honey. And the land itself and the geographical and geological aspects of the land itself will also start to shape our story. Anyone remember what the plague is that hits the Nile? The Egyptians go for water and it is blood. What event might that be remembering? And so the story is like this. And the author of this book, the divine inspired God breathing text that we are reading, this is incredible. As God starts to set forth the weaving of these aspects of our story, as he starts to set the stage for what we are to expect, do you remember the amazing scene at the end of the story of Exodus where Moses and the Israelites cross through a mighty sea? Yes? And what happens then? Who then is killed by water? The Egyptians. These aspects of story and of character development and of symbolism are not accidental. They are divinely inspired and they are incredible. And we should take note because they're going to start to expand a larger portion of our understanding. That which was life-giving that God had built there to bring life is now going to bring death at the hands of all of Egypt. So how do we follow the example of the midwives? How do we look at them and we say, okay, you were a minor character, but you became of major importance, and I want to be like you. Well, guess what? It's not just them. We can read the rest of the Bible. Moses, you read the rest of Exodus, and we will, does not only survive as a result of the midwives, because does Moses get to live if the midwives obey? No, they would have killed him. But then his mother births him and hides him, so his mother saves his life, and then his mother places him where Pharaoh's daughter will find and sets Moses' sister Miriam right there to watch. So more, let's say, minor characters who are preserving the life, and ultimately even his wife Zipporah is going to preserve his life. These minor characters, as we've often looked at them, Moses' ministry does not exist. Moses does not exist without these women who come into his path and significantly, at great risk to themselves, lay down their lives. And as we've always read the text, we've only read it with the Moses goggles on. Maybe Aaron. Like, Aaron's interesting. He does a lot of the talking. Let's look at Aaron. Okay, Miriam, she remembers the tambourine. That's good when they sing later. That's good. We'll look at Miriam. But we don't ever pay attention to these tiny turns by which the mere tiny small actions, but obedient and faithful and heroic and courageous actions, the story doesn't occur without these players. So how do we become like them? Well, we do what's right no matter what. And that is a really hard thing to do, isn't it? But that's what we see them doing. They've been given a command. It is the law of the land, and they disobey it. Don't you think they knew that Pharaoh could kill them and would if he found out what they were doing? 
He has no compunction about killing baby boys. I'm sure he does not care one whit about these two midwives. And so they do this courageous thing, even at great risk to themselves. There was a story about this in the news just this last two weeks. Lasana Bathili, he is a French man. He lives in France. He is Muslim. And he was the one that was in the kosher supermarket, and he hid and saved the lives of maybe about 6 to 10, 12 Jews in the freezer when the terrorists came in threatening to kill everybody. He gathered them up. He pushed them down to the freezer. He turned off the freezer. It's going to be cold. He turned off the lights. And then he himself escaped to go and get help. And this was a man who did what was right, even though it may have cost him his life. And when asked about this, he said, we're all brothers. Jews, Christians, Muslims, we're all brothers. He just does what's right, even though his very life could have been taken from him as a result of his actions. Now there's this wonderful petition that's just been passed around France, and he's going to now get French citizenship as a result of his heroic actions, and they're going to have a ceremony for him this coming week. But this is a modern-day example of somebody who did what was right. Now you can say, yes, but there were others that were killed, and, and maybe he could have done more, or maybe... Hey, listen, for the 10 people that he saved, he saved their whole world. And not just theirs, but the world of all of the people that love them, all of their descendants and grand descendants and all the ones that will be coming followed. If you do this for one, you do it for many. So part of what we hear in his story is that he has empathy. He immediately looks at people that aren't like him, that don't share his same faith background, and he says, yes, but we're brothers. And I think empathy is one of the keys as we try to become significant in the story that God is writing in this world. If we want to have that major importance, that that amazing impact in the world, then we have to start to charge ourselves with the job of developing empathy. This last weekend, I saw Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun speak about their book, their newest book, A Path Appears, and I highly commend the book to you. It's wonderful, and it includes a whole bunch of stories like this. Kristoff tells a story about this judge. His name is Ollie Neal, and he's become a very important judge in Arkansas. He is very esteemed. He's been um, promoted several times. Now He's retired now, but was in charge of even the appellate court, and he is the first person in his whole family to not just go to college, but to graduate high school, and not just to graduate high school, but to get all the way through elementary school. He was a child of 13 in very rural, very poor Arkansas in the 1950s, and he went to an all-African-American school with all-African-American teachers. It was still segregated during that time, and he was a troublemaker. He was difficult. He, you know, everybody was required to call the teachers Mrs. or Miss, and he refused. He would be like, what's up, Carolyn? And he would just have an attitude. He was known in the community and in the school for being trouble. Well, one day, he snuck into the library, and he saw this book, The Treasure of Pleasant Valley by Frank Yerby, and he thought it looked a little racy, and he wanted to read it. But he didn't want anyone to know that he was reading because it wasn't cool and it was going to harm his reputation. And the librarian there, her name was Mrs. Mildred Grady, he made her cry on several occasions. 
He was so mean and so nasty that he made Mrs. Grady cry. And this was the kind of kid he was. But when he saw this book, he's like, I want to read that book. And he reached up on the shelf and he grabbed it and he stuck in his coat pocket and he went out. Well, he opened up the book and about a week or two later, he was like, that was pretty good. And he snuck back into the library and he put the book back on the shelf and there was another Frank Yerby book there. Great. Steals that one, puts in the coat pocket, goes and reads. And then he came back another couple weeks later and he put that book back. There was another Frank Yerby book there. It was one of the few books that was written, you know, by an African-American that he could read. And he was really, it's like, great, steals that book. And then he progresses into other sections of the library. He keeps stealing the books and putting them back. Stealing the books and putting them back. And because he's a very famous alumni of not just this school, but this community, he's often invited back to reunion programs. And he was back at this one reunion, and he says, you know, I became a reader in the library of the school. I saw this book, and I pulled it off the shelf, and I took it home. I couldn't let anyone know I was a reader. And so I, I read it and stuff like that. And after he spoke, Mrs. Grady came up to him. She said, I saw you steal that book. And I was going to go up to you and say, you don't have to steal it. It's free. Just check it out. Why are you stealing the book? She's like, but then I waited and I stopped. And I kind of got what you were doing. I knew no one could know that you were reading. And then when you came back and you'd actually read that book, I'd found another one. And she stuck another book up on that shelf. She drove 50 miles to Memphis and went from used bookstore to used bookstore to used bookstore until she found the third used bookstore where she found more of these Frank Yearby books so she could sneak him back onto the shelf knowing that he was going to come back in. The boy that made her cry and was terrible and a terror in the whole school that he would come back in and steal another book. That's empathy. Empathy is to not say, let's bust that kid. Let's give punitive damage. Let's suspend him. Let's kick him out. Let's talk about how he's a terrible kid. Now he's stealing more. Empathy is Mrs. Grady watching the child that made her cry steal a book and say, how can I reach him? And I'm going to drive 50 miles with my own money and my own gas money and my own car in the segregated South, and I'm going to hit bookstore after bookstore until I find another book for this kid to read. And it turned him into a reader, that turned him into an honor student in high school, that turned him into a fantastic college student, and he went on to law school, and he never forgot that he wanted to give back to kids like him, and he's continued to live this amazing life, and his daughter has done the same, and she's gotten her doctorate in genetics, and she's going and continuing to work with kids. I mean, this all because Mrs. Grady decided to show a little empathy to not take the letter of the law and to try to understand who this was. She takes a risk. Now, it's not the same risk of Pharaoh saying, kill the babies, but don't you hear the same impact, the same story can be held with just one small act, one thing that we can do if we start to engage a little empathy within ourselves. The Pope just recently talked about this in the Philippines. He's there on a visit. And this young girl comes up, and she's going to be sharing. She had been a homeless youth, and she's recently been rescued. She's 12 years old, and she had been forced into prostitution. And in front of the Pope, she's starting to read, and she says, sobbing. She can't get the words out. This isn't supposed to happen to children. 
Why is this happening? Why are we homeless? Why are we having to prostitute ourselves? I'm a 12-year-old girl. This isn't supposed to happen to children. And the Pope stops everything, stops the speech, throws it entirely out that he was planning on giving, goes and wraps this sobbing girl into his arms, and then he turns to the community that he's there, the whole audience, and he says this, she's the only one who has put a question for which there's no answer. And she wasn't even able to express it in words, but in tears. The nucleus of your question, he tells her, almost doesn't have a reply. There are certain realities in life we only see through the eyes that are cleansed with our tears. Empathy. He doesn't start his response with, okay, let's start with some institutionalized changes. He doesn't start his response with, Let's try to see how, let's get the child that's sobbing and crying off because i got to go back into my speech. He stops everything, throws everything out, and he starts to teach the lesson that she's teaching to everyone there. One of our dear Sparkers last night after the Selma movie, I thought it was such wisdom, said that the thing that struck him as he watched the film and also sat in the audience with our two communities together was that he felt empathy. And because of that, it made him able to deal with the material, the painful, difficult material of this racial oppression in our country because he could see the empathy on the faces of those in the theater and also those on the screen. The Pope then turns to everyone and he says, start by thinking. I'm going to ask you to do three things. He says, I'm going to ask you to think, I'm going to ask you to feel, and I'm going to ask you to do. And I want you to think about what put this girl into this situation, and I want you to feel that pain. I want you to start generating the empathy within yourself. And then that is what moves us to the action that changes and shifts how we live in this world. And I just wonder if the midwives didn't do that same thing. If they left that meeting with Pharaoh and they were like, let's think about this. And they at least had somebody to talk to. Did you hear what he said? I'm pretty sure. Did he say actually kill them? Because I'm pretty sure I heard him say kill them. And let's feel what that would mean. Not just to us, but also to the women that are going to lose these children. And let's do something. And this is how we start to play a significant role, even though it's just little old you and little old me. And here's a little 12-year-old girl who gets to derail the Pope's entire message for the day and instead get him to preach the message he needed to preach. Now, as we're in these various moments of our world, we can feel a little bit overwhelmed. What do we do? Well, let's look to the past for inspiration. See, I feel overwhelmed when I watch the events of the news today. I feel overwhelmed when I watch uh, Christian genocide happening throughout um, Africa and the Middle East. I feel overwhelmed when I see the stories of police brutality against racial lines, against African-American youth in our community. I feel overwhelmed when I look and cross the bridge from East Palo Alto to Palo Alto. I feel overwhelmed and frozen when I think about all that's happening in the big pictures of human suffering, and I often don't know what to do. I feel overwhelmed when I find out that the worst homeless problem in the United States is really existing here in our very own county. I'm overwhelmed when I hear those things, and I don't know what little old me, little old us is going to do. But then I look to the past, and I remember the march on Selma, 
And I remember that at this moment, they didn't know how the story was going to turn out. As these marchers are getting beaten on the bridge, they don't know how the story is going to turn out. They don't know that they're going to get the Voting Rights Act. They don't know that things are going to start to shift and that there's still going to be a lot more work done today. And I look at their courage, and I see what they did, and I think, yeah, one person walking on a bridge is just a man or woman going for a walk. But all of us together, all of us little insignificance together, we can do something powerful together. And we can see nuns and priests and rabbis and white and black and Asian and Latino and everyone coming together. And even in the face of this type of brutality, even in the face of this type of response when they get to the steps of Montgomery, they still stand and they still say, we have to do what's right. We have to participate in a little civil, civil disobedience in order to save lives. And when we help just one we change one person's whole world. And that's enough. So when I get overwhelmed and I think, how do we do this? How do we fix these big systemic problems? I think, well, I, I'm just going to help one. And if all of us here in this room help just one, we're golden. We're making big change. We're seeing the world shift and change. If we help just one, we can start to see a big thing happen. Now we do all of this because we know the author of the story and we see the values that God is infusing into his story. We understand that we are commanded to preserve life. We understand that we are encouraged to act when, when the powers that be say kill. We say we choose life over and over and over again in big ways and small ways. So in all of these moments, this is my word of encouragement, just keep calm and be his sidekick. That's all we have to do. This isn't our story. And truth be told, it's not Moses' story. It's not Pharaoh's story. It's not Shifra and Pua and Miriam and, and Zipporah's story and Yochabed. It's none of their stories. This story is about God, the creator of the universe, who has set things into motion and is in a giant redemption plan of bringing them back the way they should be. And guess what? We get to participate. He doesn't really need our help all the time. He's allowing us to participate and to help because we are changed when that happens. We're the ones that feel better about who we are, better about this world, better about humanity, more hopeful when we get to see a little bit change, when we get to extend ourselves and start generating that empathy, when we get to start to see ourselves changed as a result of the fact that we have been allowed to participate in a beautiful story of redemption in this world. So keep calm and be his sidekick. That's all we have to do. God is the superhero. He's the major character of the story. His plan is the major plan and, and plot of the story. We get to participate. We get to partner. And we get to start seeing change happen. And my prayer is that this weekend when we all hopefully have a little bit of rest tomorrow with Martin Luther King Jr. Day, that we don't just say, oh, thank God I get to sleep in or I'm going to go and do something fun only with my friends, that we take a moment, that we remember a man, one person, one preacher from Atlanta who changed our nation as a result of his faithfulness and ultimately his sacrifice. One broken, flawed, human person like all the rest of us. Incredibly talented and gifted, yes? 
but just human who stepped out and said, I have to see this change, and I will be disciplined in my response, I will be careful in my response, but we must start seeing things change, and we all live in a better world, in a better United States as a result of that. But it's also not his story. It's a larger story we're all participating in. Amen? So pray you walk away tonight knowing that you're very important. The major importance of minor characters in the story, God uses us and brings these things to pass. Just little old you and me, just Mrs. Grady, can change a life that changes lives and loves. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much, Lord, for using little old us. Thank you for partnering with us through the power of your Holy Spirit, giving us strength and direction. Thank you for giving us a community around us here in this place, in this church, that when these things come into our lives, when these questions, these decision moments, these challenges come in front of us, we can turn to one another and say, help me think and feel and then do. God, let us together with you and your power, let us, Jesus, please come and do this with us. Build your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.